Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. We ran out of film one day, and it was too early to tell everybody that. It was out of Jones Beach. We were out of this 100-foot spiels, or spools, or whatever you call them. And somebody said, what are we going to do now? And I said, don't tell the actors we're out of film. Don't do it. Let's shoot. So we shot whatever it was. It said it was fine, whatever, whatever. And we kept fucking around and went home, whatever. So about a week later, one of the guys, the actor, says, Whatever happened to that scene we shot? Something like, didn't work. That was Robert Downey Sr. I'm Sam Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. he called himself a prince in the credits of most of his films, Robert Downey Sr. said, I was too young to be a king and too committed to be a queen. He's also too funny to not make a joke. There are plenty of serious facts to be relayed about Sr., and he'll probably laugh at all of them. He started making movies in the early 60s of New York, the Greenwich Village area. Many claim he was at the birth of the independent film movement. His work was marked by its aesthetic experimentation, its political fearlessness, and its outright refusal to not poke fun at the powers that be. In the 60s, he made films like Chafed Elbows, No More Excuse, Sweet Smell of Success, and, most pivotally, Putney Swope. Swope has since ascended to cult status. 
a searing satire about a token black man who was accidentally put in charge. Downey spends much of the movie teasing and taunting the very nature of the advertising business. Its superficial foundation, its silliness, and, of course, the absurd people that literally and figuratively buy into the system. But I'm taking myself and Downey too seriously, something he warned us to avoid back in an interview in 1967. You know, if everybody could get turned on to not taking themselves too seriously and having a sense of humor about themselves, I think we could get over a lot of things that we take very, very seriously. We could approach the serious matters in a different way, like war and poverty and all the things that are going on. I'll avoid divulging much more biographical info here. We get into it during the podcast. When I visited Senior at his home in New York, he was in good spirits. He didn't know exactly why we were talking. He hasn't done many podcasts exactly. And we're not promoting any specific project, which is kind of my favorite type of interview to do on this show. He was happy to share a bit of his life during our time together. He also, apparently wants to do round two of this interview the next time we're in the same city. So for now, I give you what I hope is the first of many conversations with the one and only Robert Downey Sr., a true prince. So let's start with 1936. You're born. I imagine you don't remember a whole bunch about being born. But I did want to ask you this because it's something I've been thinking about with my family lately. Is the first memory you had of, of existence. Coming down a hall that leads to a living room below. And I don't think my sister who's younger than me was with me. I might have been three. Two or three looking down and seeing my father and mother, whatever the social thing was. And that's the first thing I remember. Mm. This is at your house at the time? Yeah. Uh, and you, you guys were in New York City proper? Long Island. Then they got divorced and we moved in with my grandparents. Oh. Wait, why, why not with one of the parents? Well, my father, I think, was... Where was he? That's a good question. <laughs> um, my mother was working as a model back then and supporting everybody. Right, right. And so you move in with your grandparents. You and your sister yeah, move in together. Yeah, the grandparents, and we were with them for a while, which was great. So you were you had your childhood predominantly with your... With them, yeah. We would see the parents once in a great while. Yeah, you know, it's funny. My mom, that was her situation, and she preferred her grandparents to her parents anyway, so it worked out... Yeah, well, that makes sense. It will, why is that? Is it because like, it's a different dynamic? Less rules. It's less rules. Yeah, there's no rules. Yeah. Were your grandparents happy to have you guys? Looked like it. <laughs> they were just happy to be somewhere, you know. And also, um, they were very loving. Mm. Did that rub off on you? I hope so. <laughs> what are memories you have with your sister and your, and your grandparents growing up? just that we were kind of my sister and I were kind of I don't remember talking about it but I'm sure we did the idea of coming from divorced parents was great because you got to 
go visit somebody here and go visit somebody there and somebody else would show up. And we were the only ones on the block that had been through a, a divorce. Oh, really? Yeah. That's we were unique. <laughs> In this, the place I lived, everyone around us, divorced parents. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it, it's a different generation, I think. Oh, yeah, probably, so, sure. So back then, divorce was less common. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I don't know how nostalgic of a person you are, but as a childhood, I mean, I, how did you, how would you characterize your temperament as a kid? Were you like a happy kid? Did you go outside? I remember just l- wanting to play baseball day and night. Mm-hmm. And there was a field like three blocks away where kids met and we would play well into till the voices started saying, you get home now, and that kind of <laughs> stuff. So that's what I remember most. And my grandmother would say things like, you can do this, but let me know when you're going out. Mm. She wanted to be aware of where you were going. That's right. But she wasn't upset that you were spending time playing baseball. No. Yeah. My parents were super relieved when I was like, I'm going to go play baseball and basketball now. I'll be home in eight hours. They're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Get rid of them. Oh, thank- it's like better than a child sitter. It's great. <laughs> What position did you play? Pitcher. Any good? Yeah, I was all right. Because I know you made it to the minors, but I didn't want to skip ahead so far. Yeah, class C or D for about two months. Oh, okay. Then I got bored. You got bored? Yeah, because my fastball lost its uh, steam after three innings. What was your fastball? I had a hop on it. Mm, like Natural. Mid-70s? Mid early. Uh, I don't know. Back then, nobody knew what that was. Oh, no one clocked it? No. Oh, okay. Interesting, but just to have played was great. Yeah, in high school, were you predominantly someone interested in sports? Was that your? Yeah, not interested in school at all. No school. None. We got out in the end of the ninth grade. Were you a bad student? I must have been. (laughs) I hated it. What about your sister? She's a great student. Sharp. Mm. In fact, recently she left me a message. She said, "Do you remember?" going to Coney Island with me and if you do how old were we I mean like, <laughs> she's 70 78 funny to think back like that and then I thought maybe I went to Jones Beach with her and some people mm. that she's confused about where it was and I'm not sure uh-huh. but the, the older you get sometimes you want to know things from somebody who you think was with you at that moment right is that true of old age have you noticed that where you're trying to fill different pieces of memory together? Yeah, the older you get, the more that, that happens, where you're trying to figure out what's real and what's a dream and what you want it to be. And I feel like the wanted to be is a big part. You start filling in things that are aspirational or like you wish had happened, maybe more selective. That's good. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. I'm not. You, when I walked in here, you said, uh, don't get old. So yeah, don't. <laughs> If you can help. If I can help it. If that opportunity comes, take it. Mm. Were you a serious child at all, or were you someone that's like happy-go-lucky? I don't remember really much of that. No, you don't Uh, remember? No. Just that I I felt safe with my grandparents. They were interesting people. Then he died. Your your grandfather died. Yeah, he died. That was like, we could not figure that out. Even though he was sick a lot, we didn't know why, why it would kill him. And my grandmother, from chasing us around, 
and trying to be the mother, father, everything, had a stroke and could never swallow after that. So she had to put a tube down and thing. She would always say to me, don't worry about it. I understand what I'm going through. Don't you worry. <laughs> Did she understand? Oh, yeah. And where were your parents in this? Was your mom still My working? My mother was working and all over the world as a model. Right. I and saw some father, of those photos of her on magazines. Yeah, yeah that's right. Really remarkable. That's uh, what a job to have. Back then, yeah, it was a big deal. So that was the beginning of that kind of stuff. Oh, is that true? That's yeah. True. Oh, okay. Because it's, it's a th- famous picture uh, by Irving Penn. Ten models. It's a famous picture. Something I'm interested in is your mom is having this really successful career while you're growing up. You're not living with her at all. You see her sporadically? Yeah, here and there she'd come visit. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they found a way to get me into a private school after my grandmother got sick, stroke. Then a couple of other private schools. I got thrown out of all of them. (laughs) So it's consistent. Right. Uh, Did you feel like you didn't have a mom? I never really thought that way, but I'm sure I did. Now I can't remember thinking that. Do you feel that now in hindsight? She's a big pain in the ass. To me, anyway. What, she, she was harsh on you? She was no, no, she was perfectly fine. But she was great looking, and that's about it. Really? She, she wasn't smart? I can't be sure of that. But I'm, ultimately, it was like a lot of pauses. Pauses between and uh, yeah, back yeah, and forth? Yeah, a lot of waiting for somebody to say something. <laughs> Okay. Well, did you have any resentment towards her for, like, leaving and pursuing her career? No. No. No, not that, because I knew from overhearing people talk, like her brother and uh, my grandmother and people, that she was doing great in keeping everybody afloat with the money she made Mm. during the Depression and all that. Oh. So there's a, a good side. Yeah. There's a nobility there. So r- run me through this. You you get kicked out of all these private schools yeah, because they think you're an asshole? Or what, what, what is going Who on? Who knows? <laughs> you know, I have no idea. <laughs> what did they say I to you, Bob? You, your time is up here. <laughs> you took one class. I'm sorry. You were too much of a disruption. You got to go. I don't know about that so much, as they knew I hated it. Mm. I'm trying to think. And I went to live with my father for a year in Florida during all this. And then I made up my mind, as soon as I'm 16, I'm going in the Army. I don't care how I get in. And my mother signed me in, said I had a birth certificate that burned in a fire in Nashville. She couldn't wait to sign me in. So I was in there at 16 and trouble in there, too. Mm. Did you feel lost at all? Did you feel No, confused? I felt I felt okay. It was interesting to be 16 and in the army, you know. Mm. And you had bounced around and so you entered the army cuz I, I was reading about this. Did you understand what you were doing? Like being in the army, did you understand the responsibility of that or even want that responsibility? 
I don't know. It's just good to be part of a group of people. Just generally? I think so. Because isolationism is lonely. I've spent enough time in the stockade to get lonely. Because when you fuck up there, they don't give you a reprimand. They put you in a thing. Of, it's actually a barracks with a fence around it. That's the stockade. That's the army jail. Ah. So it's, it's, it's you in there by yourself. Yeah, but there's other people with you. Other soldiers? Yeah. That have fucked up. Who can't? A lot of people fuck up just so they don't have to f- shoot rifles and be part of the army. Is that what you did? No, I was just a drunk. Oh. At 16? Yeah, a lot of beer. But that's what happens when you're 16. Yeah. That's a teen. That's a young. I mean, the, the difference is um, when I was drinking at 16, I wasn't in the army, I was just in high school. It's understandable that you were drinking at that age and being a rambunctious, rabble-rousing teenager. I mean, that's not uncommon. No, no, not not now that I see it, yeah. But the Army wasn't excited about that. No. So what did you do to get rid of the loneliness? Or, or how do you even get through that? that? You know, that's honestly what I'm, I'm so impressed by, is like to be 16 and shipped somewhere... It was great. I get to go around the world, but also I got in trouble with places where I was locked up. But when I get out, I would have fun. I mean, Okinawa, Alaska, pretty wild. What was your favorite place that you ended up in? Alaska. I've never been. It's beautiful. And you, where we were, you could see across the Bering Straits and see Siberia. So it was pretty... You know, while we knew the Russians were right over there, but we was a radar station to check the planes coming over and mm. stuff like that. There's a there's a report that I don't know if it was in Alaska or sometime it was at some camp or base when you were in the army that you. I mean, this sounds like a, a recurring thing in your life. You were causing trouble. What kind of trouble are you causing besides besides not wanting to be there or, or being a little drunk or being a teenager? What kind of trouble were you causing? Well, this was in the state of Washington, uh, Colville, Washington, up near the Canadian border. It was another radar outpost, which they was beginning to formulate that that was the job I was going to do in the army: is look at a radar scope and write stuff down, whatever. Sounds a little boring. Oh, so I remember I was on guard duty at a shack above the thing, and they dropped me off there and said, I'll see you later, meaning in eight hours or whatever. But there was a dance in town that I wanted to get to, so I just hung up part of my uniform on the back of the chair and put a hat on top of it. Went to town, and the guy who took me up there and dropped me off was at the dance. He couldn't believe it. He said, what the fuck are you he was there at the party. Yeah, so that was a court-martial, <laughs> deserting my post. As soon as I walked in, as he's who I bumped into. And the first person, you're like excited going in there, and then all of a sudden the first person you see... Next thing I know, I'm in the truck heading back to where I started. What's that ride like? That truck ride so back? I'm in big trouble. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. thought I could get away with that, but that's... 
That's what happened. Did you feel like you could get away with a lot of things back then? I don't think I thought about it. I was more of a spontaneous guy who usually hooked up with people as nuts as I was. And and we had fun together. I remember some guys from the Bronx, they were hilarious. What would you guys do? Well, Debbie Reynolds came through on a USO tour. There's like only 100 people on this space. The little plane landed. And she got off and we all saw her go. And later that night, the guys from the Bronx are in the hall trying to peek under the door and get a glimpse of Debbie Reynolds. <laughs> Did they? Yeah, I remember seeing something. I'm not sure what it was. Man. But I looked. Yeah, you looked. Yeah. Why not look? <laughs> so that didn't help. It's funny. When you're thinking back on this stuff now, does it seem amusing to like? Are you? Yeah. Is it just kind of? Is it like a different world for you? I was kind of okay with the spirit of what we were going through, which is you know we wanted to be here. Now that we're here, it's horrible. But let's have some fun. Well, this is a life. This is an existential life motto. You're saying. Well, it was back then. You wanted to be here, and now that we're here and it's terrible, let's make Meaning it... in the Army. Oh, oh, in the Army. Yeah, now that we're in the Army and it's terrible, let's have some fun, mm-hmm. at least. And did your superiors ever agree with that ethos? I just remember there was one sergeant who used to say about me, and he was head of the stockade, you again. <laughs> that was it. So what happens after? You leave the Army eventually? Are you dispatched? Yeah, bad discharge, and couldn't wait to get back to New York. Mm. So what age is that? You 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 entered sixteen, About you leave eighteen or nineteen. You leave eighteen or nineteen. Yeah, and you go back to New York. What they give you when you get thrown out is jacket, maybe a couple of hundred bucks, and that's it. And you're out. As I was leaving, the guy on the front gate, I think this was in California where I got out, said. You are one lucky fucker. Meaning you're getting out. I'm standing here watching you leave. Yeah. Of course it's how he felt. Yeah. That was fun. That you got to break free? Yeah. But this was true. But again, this is true of what happened to you at the private schools. I bet there were private school classmates of yours who were like, Oh my God, I can't believe you get to leave this terrible school that I don't want to be at either. Catcher in the rye. I've heard you mention this before. Yeah, well, Catcher in the Rye was a great book for people who'd been in private schools. Mm. Funny. And the guy who wrote it has been in the school that he's writing about. Right. Salinger, yeah. He he passed away? Yeah, not too long ago. Right. Was that book pivotal to you in the moment? Not only pivotal to me in the moments, I gave my grandson the book when he was... Rosemary and I sent it to him when he was... 14 or something, I think. Mm. He loved it. Do you see that as part of your story? The story in Catcher Probably. In Have you read it? Yeah. It's funny. It's funny. It is funny. It's funny. I'm looking at the Salinger book right there on your uh, shelf. But you don't strike me as someone... The thing about the Salinger... About, the thing about Catcher in the Rye is that it has some sort of sinister quality to it. That's good. Right? It's a little nefarious. 
I don't get that impression from you. You as a human being. I don't even think of things like that. Sinister. No, I don't think of things about what I'm like. Do you know what I mean? Well, only somebody else might have an opinion about that. I'm just happy to be alive and in the world we're in now, which looks like it's going to end soon. It's kind of frightening when you have grandchildren and you think they might not get a shot. You believe that? Yeah, I do. Why would I think otherwise? It's getting worse. There are nuclear weapons everywhere now. And the destruction is, or rather, the place we're at, it's irreversible. I feel there's a good chance that's true. You think that, that the politicians who are killing people and lying and doing whatever they're doing every second are going to stop? Maybe I'm naive. Maybe. Maybe I am, but that's how I feel. I don't think you're naive. I think you've lived long enough and seen enough in life to understand the machinations. Well, I've seen something like this coming for a long time. But don't forget, when I was in Alaska, these planes used to fly over from Russia over Alaska and vice versa every night, and they had atomic bombs. This was 1954. That one mistake could have triggered everything. Mm. Do you remember the planes going over you? Yeah, you see them on the radar scope. And they would check in to say, you know, blah, 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 B-47s. And you knew their power then? Yeah, well, everybody knew. Yeah, it was called Strategic Air Command. Hmm. How do you re-enter civility or, or, or society when you're 18 and 19 going back to New York? You just hope you can get a job. Which I lucked out. My sister married some guy who managed some kind of food joint in the village. So I got a job as a waiter, a counterman, and just looked to have fun and be thankful I didn't get put away for a lot of lot worse stuff fucking around. Mm-hmm. You know, that I didn't hurt somebody or get into a real serious fight where somebody got really wounded or something like that. I got lucky. You had no particularly scarring experiences in the Army? Scoring? Yeah. No, it was positive. A guy who ran the stockade, the same guy I mentioned earlier, one day said something like, you're pathetic. And he handed me a notebook. He said, instead of just sitting around smoking cigarettes on off time, start scribbling stuff. You never know. And I said, thanks. And sure enough, later on, that's what I did. What were the scribbles? Just some writing, which I'd never done before. Was it more like diary-like writing? No, I was reaching for something I didn't even know what it was. You know, eventually I had the courage to write plays and screenplays and stuff like that. But it all came out of that guy. Mm. The one who called you pathetic. Yeah. He was right. (laughs) (laughs) So, you're back in Greenwich Village, 1955-1956. Are you writing? A little bit. And my sister said there's a... I moved in with her for a while in the village. And she said, you know, there's something that's going on down the street and over a block or two every night, there's a line out on the street and you ought to go check it out. There's something going on. 
I said, well, let's go. She said, no, you check it out first. And I went down. It was Three Penny Opera by uh, Kurt Feil, which was a big hit off-Broadway, one of the first off-Broadway hits. And I went, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. So, again, my sister, if they don't push it too hard, you'll try it. Ah. So you think that's your that's been your success? Yeah. Has been whatever that is. It's it's not independence, or rather, it's like someone pushing you towards a reality. Yeah, pushing me somewhere. <laughs> sometimes you don't want to go, or sometimes you, sometimes you don't want to be pushed. But that was mesmerizing to see that play, the that, Penny Opera. Oh God, it was actually seeing something that was about something. Right. I can't even fathom. I mean, you have to understand, my generation, like, my generation thinking back on what Greenwich Village was like in the mid-50s. great. I'm so fascinated that you were not, not only living there, but in the thick of it as someone who's trying to do something creative. I mean, what were the memories? What are, what are like, some things that well, stand out to you? Well, you can remember that Poets were on the corner on St. Mark's, I'm sorry, A Street and 6th Avenue. Mm -hmm. Avant-garde plays were springing up all over the place, great writing. And then came a column in the Village Voice by a guy named Jonas Mikas, who was the underground critic, mm -hmm. big deal with film and everything. And I made a couple little films, and he wrote well of them, and that was a big deal for me. Right. So... Uh, Back then, things were happening. People who were making films would say, listen, do you know where I can get an editing room tonight? Somebody might say, yes, yeah, so-and-so has one, but you got to be out of the, his building by 7 in the morning, as long as you clean up. And people, Filmmakers would help each other. I got extra film. Whatever, that doesn't go on anymore. It was more collaborative. That's right. Is that because there was less ego? Well, it was all new, that you thought you could make a film when you thought films were Hollywood. Uh, you could actually make something that could be made for almost nothing or whatever. It's exciting. Is there a moment in the mid-50s when you're back and you're now the end of teenagehood and you're becoming a young 20-year-old, you're a young man in this city, is there a moment where you think to yourself, yeah, maybe filmmaking is the path I need to go down. Well, there was a, I worked at the Village Gate as a waiter also, and there was a guy working with me there who said, you write, right? And I said, yeah, kind of, a little bit. He said, well, I have a camera. Let's go make a film. That's all. What was his name? William Waring. And so we went, and he had a little wind-up camera. You spring <laughs> one. And we got some actors together, and I said, let's put the words in later. The hell with that now. We don't have a sound man. Right. And we keep notes about what somebody might have done or said or whatever. And we used, you know, when you see tracer bullets on when planes are firing guns and you see these things, we got a hold of some of that film. Somebody found that 100-foot sp spools of film, and it fit in with the camera just right, three minutes. And you had 18 seconds after you wind it, and then it ran out. So it was pretty disciplined. So you had to create quick... Yeah. scenes and moments yeah that was luck again it's kind of good on the editing front right it's like it forces you to self-edit kind of and be like alright you can't be ponderous you can't meander 
I did that anyway, but you're right. You do start <laughs> thinking. We ran out of film one day, and it was too early to tell everybody that. It was out of Jones Beach. We were out of this 100-foot spools, spools or whatever you call them. And somebody said, what are we going to do now? And I said, don't tell the actors who are out of film. Don't do it. Let's shoot. So we shot whatever it was and said, it's fine, whatever, whatever. And we kept fucking around and went home, whatever. So about a week later, one of the guys, the actor says, whatever happened to that scene we shot? I said, something like, didn't work. Emotionally, the, the drama, it just, it didn't quite connect. <laughs> so early, it was exciting. People were happy to help each other. There was a true creative they were excited community. by each other's work. They'd say, that's great. There was no, it wasn't envious. It wasn't envy. It wasn't greed. It wasn't any of that. There was a place called the Charles Theater on Avenue B or C where every year they had a festival where you bring whatever film you're working on and put it on a pile up in the projection booth and sit down and wait. It could be days till your film showed up. <laughs> and it was great to see all this stuff coming in. It was reassuring to know that other people were doing stuff on their own. Would you bring stuff to that? Yeah. Do you remember when people responded to your art for the first time? When, someone went, when there was an audience? Well, it was Jonas Mikas. And I lucked out, there were some theaters in Greenwich Village that were small theaters and they were starting to play films and I lucked in. Bleecker Street Cinema was great. Uh, do you know who Charlie Mingus is, a jazz player? Yeah. He walked down the center aisle of the Bleecker Street Cinema one midnight screening of some stuff with a goldfish and a drink, like a libation. What? Said, yeah, we couldn't believe it. Nobody said a word. He walks down the aisle. Holding a glass, and you can see there's a fish in the glass. That's how wild it was. I mean, it was blasé almost. That's not even... That, that almost exists in like some... It's like surrealism. I mean, it's... Well, that's right. That's right. The goldfish. And, and it also makes you think about what your writing could be just from Charlie Mingus fucking around. Just existing in life with a goldfish in his hand. And a glass full of liquid. Was he by himself? As I remember, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know why I asked that. Of course he's by himself. You could not be with a friend and be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to walk with this goldfish. Watch this while I go to the bathroom. Hey, I, I got to take a piss. Here's the goldfish. Man, you remember that. Did you have any other run-ins with, at the time, acclaimed musicians or artists? It was a guy who played in the Dave Brubeck group, Paul Desmond, I think is Paul name. Desmond, right, yeah. Yeah, he showed up one night when we were shooting something, and he was trying to hook up with some girl that was working on the film. Oh. So I remember him. He was an interesting character. So he was trying to flirt. Yeah, he'd already done that. He was looking for the end result mm. with her. Did he get it? I never asked him. It looked like he was about to. The end result... It's a very poetic way of putting it. <laughs> That's good. What was your life like romantically then, in your 20s? Married. You got married early? Yeah. At like 22? Oh, uh, like 26, mm. 25. That is early. Two kids. Did you, did you think as a young man that you wanted to be married early? Well, to her, yeah. 
Well, when you met her. Yeah. But bef- I never thought of that. No, okay. Before that, you were just... Everybody I know has been married three times. It's my mom. There you go. Yeah. My wife. Yeah. Why is that? Why three times? The uh, the actor, Alan Orkin... He gave here's me... A, here's what he gave me about three years ago, about being old. I said, Alan, what are you doing right now? And he said, picking up the pills I dropped yesterday. And his wife got on and said, he's telling you the truth. That's what he's doing. <laughs> That's getting old. Yeah, I thought that was great. <laughs> I understood every syllable of that. Do you find that you can really identify what it's like to be an old, an older person with a peer who's also the same age? Like, do you guys have a lot of those conversations about what it's like to be an older man? Who's the guy that had the show on HBO? Gary Shandling. Right. I met him about five years ago, and it was great. We're talking and talking, and out of left field, he says, two guys in their 90s are in a sauna, and one says to the other one, I bet I can guess how old you are. Have you heard this? And the other one says, all right, you're on 100 bucks. And the first guy reaches over and sticks his finger up the second guy's ass and says, you're 94. He said, how did you know? He said, you told me yesterday. That's Gary Shanley. Rest in peace. So I said to him, would you tell that to my son, who he knew they worked together? And he said, fuck you, once a day, Bob. <laughs> So he knew about getting old, even if it wasn't true, you know. Yeah. He just left, too. Yeah, last year, or a year and a half ago. Is that what you call it? What? Death? Is it just someone just left? I call it everything so I don't have to fucking think it's coming. Mm. Keep it alive. (laughs) (laughs) You heard Terry Southern's final words, right? You know who I'm talking about. I, I've heard of this person, but I don't know. Strange Love, he wrote. Oh. He adapted the book. Right, right, was, okay. Which was not funny. It was called Red Alert into Strange Love. Mm. He was dying, and his son, Niles, was holding his hand, saying, Dad, it's okay. You can you can go now. You Let loose. Let Go ahead. And Terry Southern said, what's the delay? <laughs> and what do you make of your own mortality do you have a final line I wish are you going to rosebud it <laughs> no I just don't want it to come to that but I hope I'll think of something yeah you'll figure it out before we get to death by the way we're skipping ahead a whole bunch in terms of your life trajectory and and making you, you know I know it's something you don't love talking about. You don't love talking about your work. Is, is that fair for me to say? It depends on how it happens or whatever. Like Temple University, after Putney Swope opened, I was doing college things to get some money, and the distributor encouraged that too. It was great. He was great. So I'm down in Philadelphia, and after this Q&A, this guy comes up to me, he's wearing a bow tie, and he says, Mr. Downey, I want to thank you for getting me into advertising. That's when I knew I knew nothing. 
with that film I mean that that film of all of them right there I think probably with Grisha's Palace it it has ascended right it seems to be the one that has been well it seems that both of them are getting a new life they're getting a new life yeah I mean that's 50 years ago it's a long time it's a half a century why do you think that is I think people like Hadrian whatever people like that who love movies whether they don't know what they're talking about or not because of the digital age anybody can see anything it's not like you have to go to a theater Mm -hmm. and word gets around with people who like something and they want to tell their friends about it stuff like that you know we're going down to uh, is it the African American Museum in Washington they're showing Putney Swope in a couple of weeks you're going to go down there? Yeah, and the Library of Congress threw it into the library about a month ago. Who would have figured? I mean, my God, that film? I mean, this is a film that people said, this is insane, nobody's going to do this, it's disgraceful, it's this and that. I mean, there were people back there who loved it, but there were other people who were going, oh, no. There are people that said, what the hell is this? Yeah, that's right. Did that bother you? No. You're undeterred. I mean, the film is the film. I was just happy we finished it and we had a good time. I thought it was never going to be shown because the earlier stuff I had did okay. Chafed Elbows and uh, No More Excuses did okay, both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I wrote this one, I said, now this one will have a big audience and then nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted to distribute it. But it is the one movie that did get distribution finally, right? Of all your films, it got the most distribution. Good distribution, right? Uh, The guy who owned all the theaters in New York, Rugoff, his name was Cinema 5, came to a screening after everybody had turned it down and he he was late. So he comes in finally and we sit him down and then we start the screening and he looks like he's really watching it and enjoying himself. There was only a few people in the room. And later on, he figured out who I was when he was leaving the screen room. He said, I don't get it, but I like it. We're going to open it. And walked out. And like three weeks later, he was putting the film in Cinema 2 on 3rd Avenue. This is a strange question. But when that, when that moment happened where he walks to the end of the theater and he sees you right after watching your movie yeah, and he says, we're doing this, did I, that make uh, you happy? Yeah, but I didn't believe it. <laughs> you were skeptical. Yeah. Who's this fucking... Well, he turned out, turned out to be the now making a documentary about him, which I'm part of, which we talk about what a great lover of film he was and insane and this and that but he was a he loved original stuff he he didn't give a fuck whether it made money or not if he liked it that's enough where were you getting your money for these movies I mean tell me privately about, privately right that this is how it happened you would have private funders who liked you a whole bunch a couple of them were so cheap it didn't matter I had some money for, for enough just enough to shoot something no well, that was a great moment you know, and then he he proceeded to prove to me that he loved films more than anybody without trying. Without trying. He called everybody Tiger. He called you Tiger. Yeah, and I don't fly. 
I was in his office when he said, you got to go fly and do these college things for me, Bob. And I said, I'm not going. I don't fly. And his wife was in the room and said, leave him alone. Don't you see that he's scared? Don said, listen, this is to me. I'll be next to you on the plane, and I'll put my body between you and the side of the plane. If anything happens, you'll be fine, and I'll die. His wife said, you're ridiculous. And I didn't have to fly. I took trains. This is because of a plane accident. Yeah. Well, it was a crash landing. I know you probably don't want to talk about this too much. It's It's not a fun topic. But when the plane's going down... What are you thinking about? I'm going to die. Is that the thought? Is death imminent? Well, here's what happened. It's a two-engine plane, and we're leaving Seattle, and we're out about an hour going up to Alaska, and one of the two engines goes out. So we're kind of going this way and that way, and there's a woman who's in the military who says, we've gone on one engine before, and everything's been fine. And I thought, that's not going to work. Even I know that. And sure enough, when we got near Anchorage, we came in and we hit the runway and we didn't turn over, we kind of slid and we got lucky. But we didn't, it's not a plane crash, it's a crash landing. Crash landing. Big difference. Right. But ever since then, I've been terrified. And thank God my kid is getting to it, he don't like it either. Robert. Yeah, he flies everywhere, he has to. Why does he not like it? Maybe he caught it from me, or maybe he, he, a lot of times people with kids put put the wife on one plane and the husband on the other. And I think I've just done that. Well, it's understandable that you wouldn't want to fly after that. Did you think that was going to hurt your career? Also, did you? Well, it did hurt a little bit. It was one thing I was offered, more of a I forget the name of it. It's about ambulance chasers or something. Mm -hmm. They offered it, and then I think I went to a meeting and said we should shoot it in black and white, and the meeting was over. (laughs) Sorry, we're uh, we're not going to do black and white movies here. It needs to be in color, preferably in 3D. Yeah, exactly. Was career even important to you in the mid-60s? If you make little films, it beats working. I don't know that many people who love what they do. Did you warn your son about making movies? And, and he was right there. He was there the whole time, right? Yeah, he's in a film called Pound. As I know, and his first line is... great. <laughs> did he like it as a kid? Did he like film? Yeah, I mean... What oh, no, you could tell. When he was around and watching, he was looking. He liked watching it. As a father, did you not want him to no, do this? You, you, were, you were excited that he cared what his dad was doing. Yeah. And I cared what he was doing. You've been asked a lot recently to rewatch your work, to re sort of dive back into the stuff that you had made in the sixties and seventies. Do you think you did a good job with the movies you made? B plus. I think I learned a lot. I was with an editor a couple of years ago working on a documentary and he turned around to me and said, you know, Bob, everything is too long. I said, everything? Yes, everything's too long. I've been doing this 30-something years. It's too long. I thought that was crude. It's true. 
everything could be just a little bit shorter. That's right. Except maybe life. No, maybe life could be shorter too. That's what I'm afraid of. So let's. Can we talk about this? What's going on? What do you mean? Are you afraid of death? Probably. What, what age did your parents pass away? I had a grandmother on my father's side who lived to be 102. That was very encouraging. The last time I saw her in the home she was in, she said at the end of the visit, you don't have to come back. I won't be here. <laughs> and she was right. She that uh, my father was 52. Do you wish you didn't get old? Him? You. I wish I didn't get old. You, well, you, we've, thought, we've gone over this, but you said, don't, you said, Sam, don't get old. Well, I'm giving you the straight info. You know it anyway. You don't want to. You don't want to get old. Although there are some moments where you feel good about being older and relaxed and whatever. Do you, is that you? Do you feel good about it? Once in a while. Do you feel like you accomplished the things you wanted to accomplish? I never thought about that. Working on something now with my wife that's uh, for a half-hour television thing, an original pilot with a couple of partners. And uh, it, it feels good to be in, in the mode of trying to create something that's only a half-hour. Since everything's too long. Too long. Why, why not truncate it? And learn from that. Exactly. Do you still feel like you have something to say as an artist? Oh, yeah. What do you want to say? Just to say something about the times we're living in without preaching. That's a tough line yeah, to walk. Yeah, 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 exactly. Because you can very easily come off as an older person talking to a younger generation, preaching about a reality that you're part of, but... That's a tough line. Yeah. Right. Do you have any regrets? Yeah, sure. Doesn't everybody? Yeah. Especially down on the goal line, sure. Is that what you're on right now? Maybe a 10-yard line. I was going to say 15. All right. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll give you the 15-yard line. What are the regrets? Things that could have been a better this or better father, it's the usual. I think I think everybody's the same. Sometimes we all cross into each other's paths somehow. Do you ever think that maybe we're not meant to get it right? That's possible. Maybe we're just here to give it a fucking go. <laughs> You're laughing at me now. Does it get easier to handle loss the older you get? I've lost quite a few in the last few months. She's just like ricochet off you, has to. Best friends actually was in the veterans hospital over here. It's down the street, VA. So when I'd visit him, I'd just leave here and walk over there and we'd meet. It was great. Every time I pass that hospital, I look up at the window where I know where he was. So, I mean, real friends are a big deal. Hmm. There aren't that many. Is that what happens? I think so, yeah. It seems like it. It seems my parents especially is the older they've gotten, the less friends they have. But those friends are family. 
Maybe that's how it works. Sounds right. I'll take it. I just don't know how you manage through... This is maybe a dumb young person statement. But the pain of all that, the pain of people leaving while you still have to be here, is it hard for you? Yeah, I try and pretend that it's not hard, but it is. I can tell you're doing some pretending right now. Oh, yeah, it's good. You didn't think you were a good dad? There are moments when it's been, I knew it was good, and other moments where I was kind of more interested in doing creative stuff than doing something simple with the kid. But this is that's what your mom did, right? I mean... I guess we repeat the sins. <laughs> I don't think it's a sin. I also don't know you very well, but maybe pursuing the creative part of the thing that makes life worth living is okay. I had to find something to be guilty about. Yeah. <laughs> you weren't Catholic, so it's not like it's Catholic guilt, right? That's right. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about things that are important to us. Or values, almost like a value system. Like your friends, the older you get, you feel like they're family, you feel they're closer. You would walk and see your friend in the VA and that meant a lot to you. Oh, yeah. And him. And him. And your son means a lot. I mean, your family means a lot to you. But has it gotten easier or harder to figure out what you care about at this point in your life? I know what I don't like. Tell me what you don't like. A lot of stuff. I just think movies are in, in big trouble in terms of the crap that comes out but once in a while a little gem sneaks through and gives you hope and I'm a, I'm a movie fan so first and foremost yeah why do you think film is in bad shape because these large films with the action and stuff like that most of them aren't any good and the ones that are get duplicated right away before they have a chance to breathe and rethink themselves I don't like the way that politics has gotten. Not that it was ever great, but it's never been like this. Does it upset you when you see... I mean, your son is in arguably one of the biggest franchises ever. I mean, Iron Man is huge. Does that... Is that, like, incongruous with what you want in movies? No, because that one was a little different than those kind of films because it was about something. It's about a guy who wants to give up selling arms... Right. Proper thinking, whatever. And his struggle with getting it done or not done, it's, it's not just an action cartoon. It's know? almost anti-war. Yeah. Yeah. And Pass of Glory is the only other one that... You know that one? Yeah. How's that one? Incredible. I know. Incredible. Did you want to make a movie on that scale? I would love to. Love to. But he covered it. Right. He also covered space. I mean, he slowed it down. He kind of covered all of human existence, didn't he? And then said goodnight. He said goodbye. He said his peace. What story... Do you remember a script you wrote back in the 60s, 70s, or 80s? Somewhere in your middle age that you were really excited about that didn't get off the ground? Uh, actually, it might be in Hal, the book about Hal... 
I had written something and he read it and he said, I want to do it. And I said, you want to do it? That's great. And he said, I think I want to direct it. So I'm going to get you some money from the studio where being there was Lorimar, I think. Get you some money. I said, to write a script? I've already written it. He said, that's who he was. Smart. He was gaming the system. Do you think you were strategic in that way? And the way he... No. You weren't good at that? No, I never had a shot to get a script paid for by somebody, you know. Once in a while I lucked out with somebody wanted to make a film and I got paid, you know. Because you weren't a businessman. No. The the worst. (laughs) Why is that? I don't know. Just not interested. You can never find anyone that would have been a good business partner? Actually, it was a guy in Philadelphia who produced Walkabout with his own money. You know that one? Mm-mm. You got to see it. Walkabout's a great film. Okay. Uh, he worked on Clockwork Orange. He was one of the original producers of that. And he also was a businessman. So he had a two, three ways. I did a film for him, a documentary in, about a park in Philadelphia called Rittenhouse Square. And I said, why do you want me to make this film? He says, because you don't know anything about it. I had to discover what he already knew. Hmm. For Two Tons of Turquoise, it's one of the few films where you change your surname. You change it to a clown. Fool. A fool. You were a prince, and the prince transmuted into a fool for that one. We were just kidding around. It seems like... Am I bu- am I reading too much into that change? Maybe. Why a prince then? You're just kidding around the editing room. Let's change these fucking credits that everybody has. Just put something after somebody's name, and that's what it's funny, you know. Hmm. Do you see yourself as a prince? Not at this age. <laughs> What do you see yourself as now? I, I don't. I don't think, I guess I don't think that way. Thinking about oneself as a young person's game. So, uh, Bob, a prince, uh, senior, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on. That was a handshake, but people listening can't hear the handshake. It was a good one. <laughs> do you want to say any final words saying goodbye? Hope I'm here in November.
special thanks this week to Hadrian Belove at the Cine Family. Without his help, this episode really cannot have happened. As for Senior's work, it's a bit hard to find streaming-wise. However, on Amazon right now, you can purchase a five-film box set of his work for $22. It's put out by the good people at the Criterion Collection. For more about Senior and his work, be sure to visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our theme music is by Dylan Peck, our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Nor Knight. I'm Sam Fricoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.